On September 1st, uh, Hurricane Dorian hit the Bahamas and caused mass devastation. We saw the pictures and we saw all that's happening. I saw yesterday that another hurricane is getting ready to do the same and come into those areas and hopefully it'll dodge those areas. But I saw that as this is becoming obviously a common occurrence uh, and has for a while, um, that whole concept of building a storm shelter is something that people who live in hurricane zones are starting to do. And they showed uh, a news clip this week I saw where they have this storm shelter. It takes about eight months to build, but you can live in it uh, for up to 30 days at least. And it's supposed to uh, keep, uh, have a, uh, keep a place for you to take refuge in the midst of a hurricane. And I started thinking, what would happen, you think, if you had one of these, but it was unassembled and you had to put it together, and you started building the storm shelter when you had a notice that a hurricane was going to hit in two hours. At that point, it'd obviously be too late, right? It's too late to build that shelter. And I think many times we as believers, we as Christians, we kind of spiritually do the same thing. You know, we think through what God is like and what's happening, and then all of a sudden when trials hit, we start to try to put it together. But wouldn't it be good to have our theological foundation set before we hit a rough time? Many of you can um, agree with this, that many times you're cruising along in life, you've given your life to Jesus Christ, maybe you're new to that, maybe you're just coming back to church, maybe you're figuring this thing out and you start reading the Bible and you feel like, wow, I'm really connecting with God, you're living the life he wanted me to live and I'm taking these steps and then boom, out of nowhere, life crashes and hands you a difficulty that's just so hard to take care of. Maybe it's a diagnosis medically. Maybe it's a loss of a loved one. Maybe it's, I have a friend that's, maybe it's a friend that's going through something difficult. Whatever it is, this difficulty comes. And in that moment, oftentimes it's too late to say who God is and what he has done. It's so much better to have our theology and our thoughts of what God is like before that so it can be an anchor during the storm. A friend, uh, dear friends of ours uh, lost a child at the age of one. And I remember talking to them and they said, you know, uh, the year before we lost our child, we were involved in a life group at church. And a life group is a group of people that meet in a home and they uh, read God's word, the Bible, and they do a Bible study and they pray and they share life with one another. And they said, in our life group, the year before this happened, the year before we lost our daughter, we did a series uh, in the Bible on the, what's called the attributes of God or the characteristics of God. Attributes is a fancy word of saying what God is like. And he said, we learn each week that God is all-knowing. And then the next week that God's all-powerful and that God is everywhere at once and that God is holy. And they went through all these attributes. He's loving, he's kind, he's a protector. And they went through the attributes of God and they said, you know, if we didn't have that study a year before this loss, I don't know what would have happened. It begs the question. The question comes, how do you stand strong in life's most difficult times? 
How do you stand strong in life's most difficult times? And in our text today, as we are in this new series called The Amazing Christian, we're studying the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul gives three anchors for his life that held him strong during difficult times. And it can do the same for us as well. So I invite you to open your Bibles, if you have it, to the book of Ephesians uh, and go to chapter 3. I'm going to be looking at the first 13 verses in chapter 3. Uh, Ephesians is towards the back of the Bible, just past 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians. If you hit Philippians, Colossians, or anything else, you've gone too far to the right, go back to the left. Uh, if you're using a Bible we have here in the worship center, I'll be on page 1037. 1037. Three anchors that we're going to see that will hold us during rough times. The first one I want to look at is called the anchor of God's mystery. The anchor of God's mystery. Let's look at verses 1 to 4 in Ephesians chapter 3. It says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, you have heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that he gave to me for you? The mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Paul is talking about a mystery here that has been revealed, and we're going to get into that in a minute, but what I want you to see before that is Paul is having an ADD moment. Have you ever had an ADD moment? Have you ever like been doing something and all of a sudden you say, oh, I, I got to do this. And you leave that and you go do something else and then you forgot what you even left. Some of you are pointing and laughing at each other. Don't point and laugh, right? So, well, okay, check this out. Have you ever prayed and then while you are praying, all of a sudden check out of your prayer and like, I got to go do this and take care of it. And then you forgot that you were even praying. You went on to something. Would you do such a thing? Well, guess what? The apostle Paul did. The apostle Paul starts verse one with a prayer. He starts praying for this reason. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Then he stops. And he, this whole idea about a mystery comes in his head. And he's so excited about it, he said, I'm going to leave this prayer. I'm going to talk about mystery. And then he picks up the prayer again, not till verse 14. Verse 14 says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. So then he goes back into prayer at verse 14. So from verse 2 to 13 is all an ADD moment that the Apostle Paul had about this idea called this mystery that he wants to reveal to you. So if you're like checking out in prayer and then you come back, you can just say, you know, I'm just like the Apostle Paul. I did it. So there you go. It happens. It's right there. So Paul has this mystery. And in verse 3, he says this mystery is about Jesus Christ. And he says this mystery has been made known. In the Christian life, there are lots of mysteries that we're not going to know about. Things like the problem of evil and why do such things happen. And, all, and as a Christian, you are invited in to embrace some mysteries you can't figure out because if you could figure it out, then God wouldn't be God because the infinite God will not be figured out 100% by the finite creation. And so there's going to be some mystery involved, but this mystery is one that Paul says has been revealed to us, the church. It has been made known. It came to pass in Jesus Christ. And the mystery he's referring to is this, that there is a salvation offered to the people of the world that has come through the cross of Jesus Christ. The mystery he's talking about is that 
God created the world. We call us the gospel. He created the world, but humankind rebelled against God and therefore created a division, a sin. It says that your sin divided you against the holy God in Isaiah 53. And so there was this division that happened. And so this mystery, this gospel is that God sent his son Jesus Christ to pay for our sins on the cross. He paid the price we were supposed to pay because of our sin. And by doing so now gives us an amazing offer that if we place our trust in him and invite him into our life, we get to go to heaven when we die and spend all of eternity with him forever, just as God intended. It's called the gospel. It's an amazing story, and it's what Paul's referring to here as the mystery. And he says, this mystery was not made known totally in previous generations. Prophets talked, they knew something was coming, but they didn't have a full understanding of this. Look at verses five to seven. This was not made known to people in other generations as it now, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. So he's saying that this before, this mystery wasn't fully known by the church, but then when they came in under the teaching of the apostles and the prophets, it was revealed that this is the gospel, that God's plan is that we, through the cross of Jesus Christ, be saved and come into the knowledge of what Jesus Christ did and be brought close to God. And then he talks about the Gentiles. Do you remember we talked about that last week? Verse 6, he says the Gentiles who did not have the Jewish upbringing, the, the culture that Jesus came into, they, they are now co-heirs because of the cross. We have one new humanity. If, you, uh, if that's confusing, I'm just going to put an asterisk and say, see last week's sermon. That whole sermon last week was all about that, that the Gentiles, Christians, are now united with the Jewish Christians in one body. And then he goes on to say that he was a servant to this gospel. Paul is saying that he was uniquely called to live this out. Paul was an enemy to the church at first. He was an enemy to the gospel. In fact, he killed people who preached this gospel. And then God radically got a hold of his heart, turned his life around, and now he's living for this gospel. And he says, if you know and understand this gospel, if you preach it to yourself, if you plummet it to the depths, this gospel will be an anchor for you during difficult times, as it was an anchor for him. Pastor Dave Harvey had uvula surgery. You know what a uvula is? I didn't know what a uvula is. It's that little thing in the back of your throat that kind of hangs like a boxing, a punching bag that, remember on Looney Tunes, some of you, now I'm dating myself, I had little, uh, some of you know what I'm talking about, right? So that's the uvula. And this guy, Dave Harvey, he had sleep apnea so bad that he had to have his uvula removed surgically. And he talks about how he used to have these amazing dreams when he'd go to sleep. He had these amazing dreams. And then when he got all into the spot where he had a really hard time sleeping, all the dreams disappeared. And then after his surgery, the dreams all came back. He started dreaming again. And he wrote this about it. He said, I didn't even know my dreams were lost until I found them, or rather they returned to me. He said, actually, they were rescued. They were airlifted from some cold, lifeless crevice where dreams hibernate until the arrival of deep sleep or something like that. All this may sound strange, but it's true. My dreams were rescued by a guy with a scalpel. 
Lots of people live without dreams. They move from one day to the next without the refreshing effect of a memorable dream. But there are dreams we can lose that are much more significant than the ones I was losing. Not the REM kind of sleep dreams, but the dreams that drive us when we're awake. The dreams that cause us to reach beyond ourselves, to see beyond the present, and to live for something more. If you're having trouble holding on to those types of dreams, that is a real problem. How about you? Have you lost your dreams? Have you lost your dream or your trust in the ability of God and what he's about and what he wants to do with the world and how he's moving to bring all this stuff underneath his rule and his reign? Have you drifted from your first love that saved you and cleansed you and forgive you for your sin? This, is a, this mystery, this gospel, this story about what God did is an anchor and it's something we need to reawaken ourselves to, to understand. Because when we do, it provides an anchor for us. Paul had another anchor. It was the anchor of mission. Look at verse 8. It says, This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ. Now I want to pause there. It says, This is his mission. His mission is to proclaim to the Gentiles, those who have no church background whatsoever, what Jesus Christ has done. And he wants to proclaim to them not only what Jesus Christ has done, but who he is, the incalculable riches, which we're going to get to in a second. But there's something you need to see. Paul does a funny play on words in the original Greek language here in the middle of his ADD moment. In the middle of his ADD moment, he says a word that he makes up. It's not an actual word in the Greek language. He takes an ending and he adds it to another word and he kind of makes up his own word. And the reason he does that is these letters were read to the original audience. This was an oral culture. They weren't, uh, there were very few people could read and write. And so Paul would write this letter and then he would pass it on to somebody who would read this letter to the church of Ephesus. And so when they read, they would try to do things that would create memories in their head so it would stick in people's heads so they remember what Paul said. And so Paul takes and he adds this Greek word and he makes up a word so that they would understand. And if you translated it directly into the English, what verse 8 would say is that this grace was given to me, the one who is the uh, leaster, is what he would say. And what he was doing is he is, it was translated least of all saints, but he used, he added this ending to least, the leaster of these. And scholars think he's doing a playoff of his Latin name, which is Paulus, which means small. And the idea that he's translating, the idea he wanted to get across is that here I am, the Apostle Paul, I'm little by name, I'm little in stature, and I'm little morally compared to all the other apostles. He's saying if there's anybody who had to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ forward and preach to the Gentile, I am the least one you'd ever think of to do that. Because of who I am. See, don't ever count yourself out in terms of a mission of God. God can use anybody. God takes people like the Apostle Paul so far from him that he was killing and, and on a rampage of people who were preaching this message, radically changed his life, and now he makes him the apostle to the people who are in the Gentile world to declare what Christ has done. Transformation like you cannot understand or believe. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying, I was so far beyond God, and God brought me back. So if you think you're not good enough, 
to live for God and live for his ways and carry out his mission. Think again. What was the end goal of his mission? He gives us in these verses three directions. The first direction he says for his mission is that to take Christ to the Gentiles, these incalculable riches, which literally means riches that cannot be counted. There's so many riches in Christ Jesus, they can't be tracked or recorded. We cannot put into words all the blessings and the enriching that comes from Jesus Christ and knowing who he is. Yes, he saves us. Yes, he loves us. Yes, he protects us. But it goes on and on and on. We could not label all that he does because Jesus always enriches life. He always enriches our life. He brings life to dead places. That's what he is about. And we have an obligation to share the amazing person of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. And when we understand who he is and what he has done, it makes sharing him easy. It's not a burden. As one theologian put it, the mission is not a burden laid upon the church. It is a gift and a promise to the church that is faithful. The command arises from the gift. Jesus reigns and all authority has been given to him in earth and heaven. And when we understand that, we shall not need to be told to let it be known. Rather, we shall not be kept silent. You see, when we understand how amazing God is and the depth of his riches and how much he loves us, the overflow of our heart is to talk about it to tell people, to live it out because people are dying to know. The next direction of this mission is that he has this mission to inform the world about the church. Look at verses 9 and 10. And to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for the ages, a famous way of saying, a fancy way of saying he's going to take this mystery, the gospel, and give it to the church who's going to declare it. In God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities of heaven. We're going to get to that in a minute, but I want to kind of talk about, so verse 9 and 10 is saying, all people who come to Christ, Jew and Gentile, are now brought together, living in love, living out the impact of what God has done. And what Paul is saying is that when the church is unified together, all ethnicities coming together because of the cross, underneath our head, Jesus Christ, filled with his love, living it out, the world takes notice. When we live out this gospel, when we live out this mystery beyond our fears, beyond our anxieties, beyond our hatreds, beyond our divisions, and we truly grab onto this gospel and live it out, we become the people that Jesus said in John 13, they will know you are Christians by my love. And when we live that out, it gives an anchor for people during rough times. It gives an anchor for us the Apostle Paul loved the people in his churches. He loved people so much. This Apostle, you can see when you read, he's always talking about how he's always in tears. He's in tears because he longs to see them. That's how much he loves them. He's always in tears thinking about his churches, thinking about the people in churches. He wouldn't do that just for an organization. He wouldn't do that just for a duty. He wouldn't do that for just an obligation the church is the people of God. And Paul's heart broke for them. He loved them. 
And the church has been established to live in that grace and that love and carry it outside the doors. And when that happens, the world takes notice. Do you know why? Because people are dying to find a love that's real. People are dying to find an anchor to hold on to. Well, this final direction of mission is a little odd. It's a little surprising. It's a little unknowing. But the anchor of God's mission is to inform the angels. What in the world does that mean? Look at verse 10 again. We're going to read it slowly. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be named known through the church. So the church is going to make this known to who? The church is going to make it known to the rulers and authorities in the heaven, the angels. That's what that's referring to. So the church is going to make something known to the angels in heaven. To understand this, theologians have given us great example to help wrap your mind around what Paul is saying here. So picture a theater. There's a theater with a play going on, and you go to the theater, and you go to see the play. On stage, the actors are the church. God is the director and the writer and producer. God is writing the script and all that's happening here. And who is sitting in the audience, according to this verse? The angels. They're watching. You see, this whole idea of where this all is going and, where, and how everything's going to be brought under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ when he returns a second time, all that stuff is somewhat hidden to the angels. We know it through the word of God and through what Jesus has preached, but it's hidden to the angels. The angels are watching the church to see how this whole thing plays out because they are curious and they don't know. The rulers and authorities in heaven are the angels. The angels right now are watching you and I to see how the gospel plays out. Isn't that amazing? First Peter chapter 1, 10 to 12 talks about this as well. It says that the prophets described this. They talked about Jesus coming in First Peter chapter 1, verse 10. And then in verse 12 of First Peter chapter 1, it says this, that angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. They long to catch, the actual literal Greek says, they stoop in and lean to see what's going on. They long to understand this gospel and where it's going. The angels are somewhat in the dark. We have more of a clearer picture of the mystery than the angels do. They long for these things. They just have bits and pieces. We have the whole picture. So that's a little wake-up call, isn't it? Think about this question. Can an angel... Learn about the gospel by looking at my life. Because we're on display, carrying out the gospel for them to learn. Can an angel learn about the gospel by looking at your life? Now, some of you right now need to stop the shameful voices going on in your head. Because the minute I said, can an angel learn about the gospel looking at your life, you immediately went to this thing where you said, ah, oh, I am not good enough, and now... Even the angels are watching everything I do. I'll never be able to do this. And they're trying to look at me to find out what it is. I am the last person, kind of sound like the Apostle Paul, the last person that they should be looking at to do all this stuff. I can't believe, and you have all this shameful things. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not where this is going. The angels long to look at your life to see the power of the gospel. 
So that means what they're looking for is for the times when you blow it and the times that you fail and the times that you sin, all those sins that you try to get free from, they keep grabbing your ankle and pulling you down again and you go before God and you say, Jesus, please forgive me for my sin. I, I, I can't believe I did that again. I, I so desperately need you in my life. Will you forgive me? And you receive the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy of God and the angels in heaven say, wow power of the gospel that's why he went to the cross it's not because you're so great in carrying out this whole christian thing it's because you're leaning into the power of the cross and the grace of god and the mercy of god and as you do that the gospel comes to life to angelic beings in heaven who are watching you lean into the gospel of jesus christ now, that's amazing that is amazing don't ever have a wimpy view of the church. The church is living out the power of the gospel so that angels in heaven take notice. That's a huge calling. That's an amazing task. And we're doing it not because we're great in and of ourselves, but because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us this is what the job description of an angel is. There's, these are all just verses in the Bible that I took and I wrote down all the things that the Bible says angels do. They're messengers of God. They watch over God's people. They sing hymns to God. They delight in God's presence. They were witnesses at creation. When stars were created, they sing. They've observed God's people from the beginning. They saw the incarnation. They saw the cross. They witnessed the resurrection. Yet, they still wonder how this is all going to play out. And in that process, they're looking at the church to see. Don't have a wimpy view of the church. Have a high view of the church. The calling is amazing. This demands a new respect for God's church, which we're going to see in this next anchor, the anchor of the mandate. Look at verses 11 to 13. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him we have boldness and confident access through faith in him, so that I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are for your glory. Paul's saying, when you look at me suffering, because he's writing this while he's in prison, as he's writing this, he had this ADD moment while he's in prison, and people were worried about him. He said, don't worry about my suffering, because I want you to know about these anchors. And when you do, you'll be able to glory in God because of it. It's so suspenseful, he says, that the angels keep watching this amazing thing of what's going to happen, that God is going to come and Jesus is going to return a second time and he's going to bring all things under his rule and his reign. Do not be discouraged, he says, because this is what's coming. And if you grab onto this mandate that the mystery of the gospel and the mission of the church to declare it is wrapped up in the mandate of living in the church, it will be an anchor for you. It'll be an anchor for you. The scripture gives us one of the most intense and weighty pictures of the church that we are the ones on display to teach angels how the gospel is lived out. That's amazing. We need to reawaken our view of what this community called the people of God, we call it, i.e. the church, is all about. 
We need to reawaken, re-recognize, re-respect this idea and concept called the church. It's not an organization. It's not a duty. It's not a place you go even though you go to it. That's not the extent of it. It's who we are as the people of God. And why would you not want to be involved in this church? Attending, living in the body, serving. I have a bias, obviously. You're saying, well, of course, you're a pastor. Of course you're going to say that. But the bias comes from this, not because I'm a pastor. It has nothing to do with it. The bias comes from the fact that this says that this is an eternal thing that happens. What in your life are you doing that is putting forth effort that's going to make a difference for eternity? What are you else? What other activity is there in life? that has eternal impact, like being in the life of the body of the church and using what God declared to proclaim this mystery, this gospel, to change lives for eternity, to go forward. And to be part of that is to be invited into the greatest thing that could ever happen to us as people and human beings here on earth. Because it's going to outlive us. It's going to outlast us. It's going to go to eternity. Things that happen in churches of impact and affect eternity. Why would you not give your life to something like that? We spend our lives on so many other temporal things that don't make a difference at all. The living for the mandate of being in the church and carrying out this gospel in a way that it impacts us and living out how it impacts us, but then taking that message to the world so that others may have that creates a whole company of people who will be living in heaven forever because they understand and hear what Jesus Christ has done for them. Why would you give your life to something lesser than that? John Stott says that this passage reawakens some facts about the church I want us to look in at as we close. First of all, number one, the church is central to history. The multi-ethnic church of Jesus Christ will one day rule the universe together with Jesus Christ and the angels, and they will rule forever. One day he's going to come and we will rule and reign forever. And everything that competes with that ruling, everything that competes with that lordship will fall apart. Militant Islam and world religions, secularization and absence of religion, hypermaterialism and, and a thinking of ourselves higher than we ought and over-focusing uh, on self and ambitions and all these things, all those things that compete in war with this mystery of the gospel are going to one day fall apart and only the church of Jesus Christ will survive history. It's written in here. It's going to stand forever. Second, the church is central to the gospel. This book of Ephesians teaches us that this gospel of Jesus coming and dying on the cross for our sin changes everything. This is what the church is all about. It's what creates the church. When you come to Jesus Christ and you ask him into your life and you repent and believe, he brings you into the church. He brings you into this new humanity made up of all different ethnicities. And the common thing that unites us is the fact that we've given our lives to Jesus Christ because of what he did on the cross. The church is central to the gospel. And finally, the church is central to Christian living. Paul was willing to pay any price for the church. He was willing to die for the church. He was willing to be tortured for the church. And it wasn't just out of an obligation. It's because he saw something. It's because he knew something. 
It's because something about the church and what God's plan was for the church captured his heart in a way that he's willing to die and do whatever he wanted to do. You see, church isn't an option for true believers. You're placed in it to live and to be part of and to grow. I'm not saying you have to go to church to be a Christian, but when you become a Christian, you're automatically placed in this thing called the church. It's not a building. It's a people. It's a community. And if you never engage or you barely engage, you're not living out fully what the expression of God's grace that he wants to give you as his child. That's why Crossview Church, the local expression of the bigger church, is so vitally important. It's so critically important. Angels are looking at us, Crossview Church, right now to see how does this gospel thing play out? Isn't that amazing? It's time for us to waken up to live the church as Paul saw the church. On Saturday, November 5th in 2011, University of Tennessee freshman Derek Brodus had a huge, cruel awakening. He was lying on his couch getting ready to watch the Tennessee Volunteers football game that night at 7 p.m. He had his chips, he had his drink, he had his remote. He's on the couch, he's ready to go. All of a sudden his phone starts ringing. He picks up his phone, he answers it, guess who it is? The head coach of the Tennessee Volunteer football team. He says, Derek, I'm sending a police car over to your apartment right now. Get out, get in the car, and get, let them take you right over here to the locker room right away. We need you to suit up and play. He drops his stuff, he goes out, sure enough, here's this police escort. They get him there. Derek says, I thought I was in a dream. I was just lying on my couch relaxing and I answer the phone and they tell me that I need to get to the stadium as soon as possible. Just minutes before that call, Tennessee backup kicker Chip Rome pulled a muscle during pregame warm-ups and could not kick. Starting kicker Michael Party was already out, injured in Thursday's practice. One hour before kickoff and the volunteers were out of kickers. Derek, a freshman who tried out as a place kicker when he rolled in Tennessee, never made the team. But on that Saturday, Derek emerged as the Vols' only option. The Volunteers coach, Derek Dooley, told the press, I said, let's get an APB out on that Brodus kid. It's a good thing he wasn't intoxicated. We just need to get him here so he can get out here and play. Minutes after Derek hung up his phone, the police escort arrived at the fraternity picked him up, rushed him to the stadium. The team's trainer stretched him in the locker room, put on his pads and a jersey that didn't even have a name on the back. Early in the game, Derek was called into duty, and he quickly made the most of his opportunity. He made all three of his extra point kicks, and he kicked a 21-yard field goal at the end of the first half, and the Tennessee Volunteers won 24-0. Back in the locker room after the final whistle, the kicker who began the evening laying on the couch with a bag of chips was celebrated as the team's hero. And everybody watched as Coach Julie gave the game ball to Derek Brodus. God has called the church to do amazing things. But my fear is that the ways of the world and our selfish hearts sometimes put us on the couch and we sit there with a bag of chips trying to watch and spectate what God's church is doing when God's calling us to get into the game. God's calling us to take this gospel and be done with shaming ourselves, be done with disqualifying ourselves because we're not good enough and all this stuff. Quit all those lies. Receive who Jesus Christ is and what he has done and our new identity in him as children of God, that we are saved, that we are chosen, that we are called, that we're redeemed, and then to get out in that world 
where darkness is abounding and people don't know truth and they don't know life and they don't know what is up and they're dying for a love that will transform their heart. When we sit here as the church with the only transforming power to change a human heart for eternity, he's calling us to go forward to carry this. It's time to get off the couch. It's time to get engaged. The church is the place that faces the injustices of the world. The church is the place that God put into practice to set people free. The church is the place that God ordained to bring people to Jesus Christ so that they find life. And it changes them not for their existence on earth, but it changes them for eternity. So how do we get involved? How do we embrace this? How do we get off the couch and get in the game? We went through this last week, but I want to go through it again. Here's a pathway of your spiritual growth that we're inviting you across your church to be intentional about. Growing spiritually is like growing physically. It requires intentionality. It requires some effort. It requires some work. And so we want to walk through this with you. First thing to do is to attend worship. Be part of this body. And for some of you right now, stage of life, season of life, that's all you can do and we get that. But if you're going to do that, do that fully. Be fully present. Prepare the night before for worship like we talked about a few weeks ago. Get ready. Be praying for the church service. Pray that God would encounter and meet us here. And if you've been coming for a while, more than a year, maybe more than two years, and all you've done is step one, it's time to take your next step. It's time to get in the game. It's time to start to serve. That's why we had our serving survey. And if you weren't here last week and you didn't know about this, there's a survey in the table in the back. If you want to serve at Crossview Church and be part of this, you can fill out that survey, drop in the box, and someone will contact you. But serving helps you grow as a disciple of Christ. You might be saying, oh, you're up there just making a pitch to try to get workers to volunteer for service. You know, God always provides workers, and he always will. I'm saying this not because of that, though that's a reality that we are a volunteer organization and we need that to continue, but here is what I want you to hear. Serving leads to wholeness. Serving leads to wholeness, and there's something about you growing. So many times we think growing as a Christian means more knowledge. Growing as a Christian means more experience in serving. Because when you serve and you interact with people and you love them bigger than yourself, God changes your heart. And so you owe it to your spiritual life to be serving somewhere. Number three, worship, serving, and then come to Tuesdays at Crossview. Or if you want worship and start coming to Tuesdays and Crossview and then get into serving, you can do whatever you want in this paradigm, but these are the things that we're trying to push you through to take the next step. Every Tuesday night, this ministry season, there'll be something going on here at Crossview Church for you to get involved with. The first thing we're going to do is a class called Christianity Explored. It's an amazing class. Whether you've been a Christian 100 years or a Christian two days, you're going to get something out of it. So I encourage you to come. It starts the Tuesday on September 24th right here, uh, Tuesdays at Crossview. Come check out. Be part of the body. Get engaged. We're going to be doing things to teach us how to uh, take this message to the world at Tuesdays across you. We're going to be praying that God does amazing things. So come out Tuesdays if that's something you want to do. And finally, worship, serving, or being involved in a life group or DNA group. And more of that's coming after January. We're going to lay out what that means and the plans of that. I talked about what a life group is earlier. Men at the men's breakfast, I'm going to talk about DNA groups. And DNA groups are... Uh, three to four people of the same gender 
who have a curriculum will give that you can meet whenever it's convenient from you and you kind of form a band of people who goes deeper in Jesus Christ. It's an intense discipleship experience that says if you want to really grow deeper and take your uh, life, uh, spiritual life to one level deeper, then DNA group is for you. But all these things we talked about at Tuesdays across you and in the coming months. But what I'm getting at is it's time for us to engage in the church. Everybody knows the church is not perfect. Everybody knows that we have shortcomings. Nevertheless, we must be committed to it because it is God's plan A and there is no plan B. When you see the end of all ends, the church is there with Jesus Christ. And so it's his plan A to carry out his mystery, his mission, and his mandate to a world that desperately needs it. And when we grab onto that and we be who we are, We have an anchor that will hold us in difficult times. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the cross of Jesus Christ that radically changes hearts and lives. That's a source of transformation. God, I ask if there's areas of our heart right now that have become asleep to the things of the gospel, the things that are on your heart. Would you awaken us by the power of your spirit? God, I pray for Crossview Church, the local expression of the church we just read about that is on display for the angels to see how gospel living happens. Would you let this be by your grace and your power and your spirit. Let this gathering called Crossview Church be a perfect display of gospel living in action. God, I pray that the gospel and what you did on the cross would go so deep in our hearts and be so permanently reflected into others that it would cause angels to look and say that's what it was about. So God, we need your help. We ask that you would help us with this. We ask that you'd meet us where we are. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.